0: Welcome to
1: the New Books Network Hello everyone. Welcome back to New Books and Gender Studies, our podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ta In, the host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Lucy Van Deweil about her new book, Freezing Fertility, Oocyte Cryopreservation, and the Gender Politics of Aging. Lucy, welcome to the show. Thank
2: you very much. Really lovely to be here. It's an honor to be a guest on this show. I always really enjoy listening to the interviews of people and and learning more about their books. So it's really great to uh, join this great collection of thinkers.
1: Yeah, same as well. Yeah, I do personally love the podcast and that's why I'm the host. And I really enjoyed reading your book. So I'm really incredibly excited to have you here too. Um, before we begin talking about your amazing book, um, I wondered whether you can tell us a little bit about yourself. Yes, of
2: course. So um, my name is Lucy van der Wiel. I am um, originally from the Netherlands, and um, yes, I've had a long trajectory before I made my way to egg freezing. I spent my life studying many different things: studying English, educational sciences, rhetoric. Um, I went to the film school. And I did a number of um, masters, and then I took a little bit time out of academia to think about what I wanted to do with my life. And I decided that I really, I really um, would like to work in academia. I really wanted at the time to do a PhD, but I only wanted to do that about something that I genuinely, deeply cared about. And when I thought about what is actually something that I feel. Passionate about it, I feel like I have the fire to work on for a long time. Um, it seemed to me that it had to touch on the things that I felt are crucial to life, and for me, that was the beginning and the end of life um, the to me um, uh, yeah the kind of the power of reproduction, the possibility of reproduction, which always baffled me and has baffled me since I was a child i 'm um, really interested in uh, social justice especially in relation to gender. And I also found it uh, really fascinating to think about ageing because uh, I had done degrees in um, cultural studies and uh, in rhetoric and uh, in social theory. And there was always a lot of focus on categories like gender, race, class, which are very important, of course. But I found in my own life and around me, the, the category of ageing and the meaning of ageing and the practices of ageing were incredibly important as well at a, at a cultural level at a, um, uh, and, and sort of at a discursive level. So, yes, so I decided I, I do want to um, uh, go into academia, but I want to focus on something that touches on all these elements. And initially, I wanted to write a cultural history of menopause because I had a lot of friends who were going through menopause and I found it a really interesting phenomena that has had uh, an interesting history of different um, iterations of it. And um, so initially I focused on the history of menopause and I went to the Science Museum in London and did a a short um, uh, visiting researcher um, appointment there on the history of menopause and thinking about how that's changed over the last centuries. Um, And then I went back to Amsterdam and I thought about actually um at that time there was a real controversy around egg freezing happening this was 2009 2010 and 2011 and um what happened at the time was that women had already been offered the opportunity to freeze their eggs if they had a serious diagnosis like uh cancer for example and they um they were confronted with either a a disease or a treatment thereof that would compromise or uh, destroy their fertility, and then egg freezing was an option for them. And at the time, uh, in 2009, one of the major hospitals in Amsterdam, the AMC Hospital, suggested we could also do this for women in order to circumvent age-related infertility. And um, there was a lot of uproar about that, and there were a lot of... um, people in the media, but also politicians who said, we don't think that's a good idea. We think that's unacceptable. And uh, at the time, we had a Christian coalition government, um, and it was mostly the the Christian parties that were upset about this idea that women could freeze their eggs without, uh, for example, a cancer diagnosis. And I thought, this touches on all those things that I was interested in in relation to menopause. I was really figuring out, like, this is to do with the beginning of life, the end of life, has to do with uh, fertility, with finitude, with gender, with embodiment, and of course with ageing as well. Um, And at the time, um, I was dating a novelist and I spent a lot of time in the um, uh, literary cafes in Amsterdam and we had a lovely time. And there I met a a new friend uh, called Marike Schellert and she told me she was making a documentary about freezing her eggs. Um, She said I would... um, You know, I would like to freeze my eggs. I heard about this technology. I heard that now it's not available to me here in the Netherlands. So I'm going to travel to Belgium to freeze my eggs. And I'm filming my journey. I'm filming, uh, speaking with doctors and regulators and, um, you know, actually the whole procedure itself. That became a documentary called Eggs for Later, which is in chapter two of the book. And, you know, the combination of the public debate and the personal conversations with Marike made me realise that this was actually a really um, important topic to look into. And um, the idea that really came up at the time in the Netherlands of normal reproductive years, like what are normal reproductive years, what is the normative force that comes out of them um, in terms of regulating what kind of reproductive choices women can make about themselves and uh, um, what kind of technologies women can access. So initially, I... um, I came into this debate and came into this field of study um, sort of motivated by the restrictive regulations surrounding me. And then over the years, as I was working on it more, I also became really interested in the opposite movement, in the context in which egg freezing was really encouraged. In, uh, For example, more in a commercial context where clinics were encouraging young women to freeze their eggs. So I think it's a really interesting technology because it has both this kind of, um, and and we can talk about that a little bit more later, but there's both has been a response in different national contexts that can be quite regulatory in a restrictive way. And there's also been a response that's been very encouraging and there's very much been um, uh, an approach in which women are, uh, as it were, yeah, encouraged to, to freeze their eggs and sometimes at fairly young ages. And so I wrote my PhD about it. I had a wonderful time at the Amsterdam School for Cultural Analysis and I had wonderful mentors there, Mika Ball, Josef Enbeck, Esther uh, And after I finished, I got a job with um, RepoSoc, the Reproductive Sociology Research Group in Cambridge um, under the mentorship of Sarah Franklin, who's fantastic. And uh, I've been working with her ever since. And uh, we have a great group of um research is all working on different reproductive technologies. So, uh, yeah, I continued with egg freezing and I'm now also putting egg freezing more in the context of other new reproductive technologies that have been introduced in the last decade.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah, that's like such a fascinating story. And yeah, thank you so much for sharing like how you really care about social justice issues and how you, I guess, went through like like a lot of struggles as well, deciding whether you want to join academia, which I think probably resonates with a lot of people because I think the question of, you know, like is my research relevant, especially because we spend so much time on PhD. Like I think that probably really resonates with people. Yeah. Um, so thank you so much for sharing uh, that Um, so there's like questions I want to address about your book but actually I wanted to ask you like briefly you know like what led you to decide that you know academia is the path that you want to pursue yes so I think
2: um, I took a little break after I finished my masters Um, I had done a lot of work and I often felt that I was um, doing work that I was following what I was interested in, but sometimes what I was interested in um, changed character when I did a lot of studying on it, because then it became more associated with obligation instead of um, excitement. And so I went to Paris and I um, spent some time working at an NGO called the International Association of Universities in UNESCO. and um, I had a really great time there. I learned a lot. It was a wonderful internship. But it did make me realize that I missed the kind of deep thinking, that I missed the academic freedom, that I missed having the autonomy to um, be an academic, to sort of find your research projects rather than to be somebody who um, is, as it were, producing something for an organization. And I think the, the kind of academic freedom, the deep thinking, the ability to really follow your curiosity and to own your scholarship and to own your work. Um, yeah, it, it rang true to me that I, that I found that really, um, uh, compelling and something that I wanted to do. And then once I, you know, had the opportunity of doing so, cause I was very lucky to get, um, uh, a ground to do that. And, um, Throughout my life, I've been given so many opportunities to study abroad or to have internships or to have grants, and a lot of those grants don't exist anymore. Um, if I had been born a couple of years later, I wouldn't have had all those opportunities. So there's there, it's it's really a much harder situation now um, for for young people. Um, but but at the time, I had the opportunity to to try a lot of different things out, and um, I haven't been bored with air freezing <laughs> ever since that happened and this is over a decade ago now i i find it still uh compels me to think about how you know um what does air freezing reflect about um ideas about fertility how does it change your ideas about fertility how do they relate to aging um how do they relate to many different cultural categories that are central to our lives and I think. Um, the question of reproduction is central to politics and the question of um, fertility is also really central to many other aspects of social life. So it it seems to be such a rich uh, topic, both in a sort of sociological sense, but also at a personal level, it always touches very closely on um, the life stories of myself and of my friends and of my colleagues. Uh, We all make reproductive decisions or we have reproductive events happening in our lives in which we have children or not have children or make decisions around that or uh, have circumstances around that that affect us in a, in a really intimate way and to be able to integrate that thinking about um, how do I relate to my own ideas of kinship, to my own ideas of family, to um, my own legacy or my future Uh, Those are such fundamental questions linked to what it means to be human, but are also really linked Mm -hmm. to a broader politics and are also really relevant uh, just at a day-to-day level. And um, I think it's a great topic to work with for me, but also for my students. So when I teach on this, I always find Mm -hmm. that students bring their own stories. Of, For example, um, I've had students being approached while they were in my class to become egg donors by by uh, agencies and they say oh wow i never considered that but now i'm being targeted because i'm studying at, at cambridge for example um or you know young people wondering about their fertility or wondering about um, access to contraceptives abortion rights um uh, just more generally um Uh, sexual health reproductive health these are all topics that are very um key to people's lives so it's it's a real privilege and honor to be able to work on that and so i've i've looked back after i made that decision and i'm very happy um to to have worked on that and i'm very really glad that uh that the book is now here so i can share it with the world for some reason i totally hadn't expected that people would read the book um i have i have written the book and i was so preoccupied with with writing the book and now it's been out a couple of months and uh, it's been really great just hearing from people that they've read it that they've uh, that something you know stood out for them or that they um you know that they had an interesting experience going through it or how they went about reading it and uh, yeah that that's really really an honor and such a special Experience to to have people give me that kind of feedback.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, I I also like you know picked up your book because like I was very you know fascinated by the title and then as you said, um, I think it also felt really relevant because um, you know, as you highlight in your uh, introduction and I think chapter one, um, even though uh, you know, the significance of egg freezing, um, you know, egg freezing is uh, available for the elite few, but then as you really highlight, the politics around it, um, you know, really affect everyone in a, in a way, like, you know, the moralistic concern and, you know, like the economic concern and the political concern, it does like affect people because it changes conception about aging, as you said. And yeah, I, um, you know, I also have a lot of friends who are older and um, who want to pursue like, a you know, challenging career, and they don't necessarily think that they'll actually have time mm-hmm. <laughs> to, you know, like have a child, but they want to, and they're already like thinking of egg freezing. So like in terms of like, you know, normative time, it was also like fascinating to, uh, you know, like hear their story and then, you know, read your book and then think about, you know, like, why do they think that, you know, they're already outside the normative time and it's impossible for them. Um. So, yeah, I um, took a class on queer temporality and your in-depth discussion on temporality was like particularly striking um to me. Uh, can you tell us more about you know, how egg freezing is reshaping gender politics of aging in relations to precarity, futurity and um, economized concept of investment? Yeah, definitely. Great. That's a great question. Thank you
2: very much. Um, and, and it is interesting that you find that your friends are considering this. You know? And I think that's a really prevalent thing in relation to egg freezing, as you mentioned in the book as well. Um, it is it is still a very limited it's rapidly growing but it's a limited number of women a limited number of cycles of air freezing um, generally but it's something that's on people's minds so in surveys you often see really large percentages of of young women especially if they are highly educated or if they pursue um, um, high paying careers many people are thinking about it even if they're not doing it it's it's part of a broader popular consciousness so I'm really interested in that and I think that the relation to work and temporality and investment and so on really is uh, something to consider in different national contexts so I, I I told you about the Dutch context context in the Netherlands where egg um, freezing initially wasn't allowed between um, uh, 2009 when it was proposed to 2011. And there was a lot of discussion around it. And I was really struck at the time by this very normative idea of um, women should not have children beyond the normal reproductive years. And in opinion polls, that came up as the main reason. It wasn't about health risks. It wasn't about, um, you know, concerns about the welfare of the child. It wasn't any of those kind of more traditional ideas about um, why people had objections to reproductive technologies. It was really about this very normative idea of ageing. that was very gendered because there wasn't a similar concern about, for example, men having children when they're older. Um, but really about uh, the idea that the biology of fertility should be normative in the sort of social time of when um, women should have children, if they have children at all. And the kind of regulatory restrictions surrounding that continue to this day in many countries. So for example, in France, it's currently under debate whether egg freezing will be allowed or not, and whether it will be allowed for single women and lesbian women. So whereas in the Netherlands, I really focused on that uh, question of aging. In many other countries, you see egg freezing being kind of a proxy for uh, determining who can reproduce under what kind of relationship. So then it, Really, could become linked to sexual identity, linked to traditional family values, and so on. Um, I have a PhD student who writes about egg freezing in China, and um, in in China, it's it's not allowed for single women, although um, some married women can freeze their eggs. But um, yeah, she her her name is Chan uh, Chan Shen, and she has written a really interesting PhD also about the ideas of motherhood and of virginity and of um, I- ideals of of um, uh yeah ideals of women that are linked to uh, this technology that become really expressed in that context and then other countries like Japan and Israel encourage egg freezing as part of their population politics and say it's a way to in the Japanese case for example to counteract the low birth rates uh, and then in commercial contexts like the US and a little bit in the in the UK as well egg freezing is really proposed as a way of um growing the industry so it becomes a broader indication for people who are fertile become uh, potential patients for infertility treatments and um, there we see a real focus on um, the idea of education and education about fertility really being a form of fertility marketing and so you see the rise of events like just information events or egg freezing parties or um, fertility vans that drive around Um, urban neighborhoods that give people information about um, uh, egg freezing, Um, uh, swanky hotels where there's uh, events really targeted to a group of women who are affluent, who are working in that particular environment and uh, who could afford egg freezing. Um, and And it's really interesting in that respect to, you know, when you look at questions of precarity, futurity, investment that you asked about, it really depends on how um, you know, how, how, cre- how fertility becomes framed in that particular context. And I think one of the things that is happening is that um, there is an idea of um, anticipating future infertility and really focusing it more and more on younger women. So the idea that you can become infertile earlier through these um, education um, initiatives. So, of course, you don't actually become infertile earlier. But there is a new time um, in which people have to make reproductive decisions about their fertility. And so previously, the question was, you know, are you going to have children? Are you not going to have children? And people have varying degrees of control or lack of control over that question. And then there was a a 20th century and continued into the 21st century, of course, uh, the question of family planning, of planning when you have those children. And now with egg freezing, we have an additional um, category there of fertility planning and thinking about when are you going to be fertile? And when do you think that your fertility is decreasing? When is a good time to freeze your eggs? So the question is not just when to have children, but for example, when to freeze your eggs. And that may be earlier. Um, And then how do you determine that? It's such a new technology. There isn't much information about how successful it is. And so you have certain companies and certain clinics that say it's a good idea to freeze your eggs when you are at your fertile peak. So when you're really young and when your eggs are of the best quality, that's the time to freeze your eggs because then you can preserve your peak fertility. And then there's other places, for example, in the Netherlands now where you can freeze your eggs, where they say you should wait until you know that you're actually going to need it. You don't want to go through that procedure with its medical risk, with the financial investment if you're not gonna need it, if you are going to be in a situation that you can have children while you're still very capable of doing so, or in which you decide you don't want to have children, you don't need the eggs anyway. So they say, wait until you're at least in your 30s so you can get a better impression of whether it's necessary for you or not. And so this idea of um, freezing peak fertility or good enough fertility or freezing fertility at at the last moment when you think, if I don't do anything now, it may never happen or doing it at a time when you can kind of weigh both things at each other. These are all new forms of fertility that are being introduced. And women are now navigating, um, women and, and people with ovaries, um, not everyone with ovaries is, is a woman, but um, you know, people are now navigating all these different constructions of fertility and when, um, uh, when and whether egg freezing would work for that.
1: Mm, yeah, oh, that's super fascinating. Yeah, I uh, remember being super struck by your discussion on like anticipation. And then yeah, how, uh, you know, that is really changing the conception of like, how like people have control and that uh, um has moral implications as well right um so uh, you also illustrate um you know how uh, egg freezing is also understood through the binary so of social medical single and lifestyle so for example when you're talking about like different contexts in which the egg freezing is either encouraged or you know like discouraged um you know like this like seemingly you know i say moral <laughs> it with the quotation mark um you know because it's like yeah it's a, it's, it's a construct which which is like manipulating people's decisions. Um, but yeah, can you tell us more about uh, like these binaries of, you know, social, medical, single and lifestyle and then how, you know, you have observed uh, how it affects our conception of reproduction and aging? Yeah, yeah
2: great. Um, yeah, definitely. So the, the, we've seen that the public debates about egg freezing are often organized around um, binaries such as medical versus social freezing or single freezing versus lifestyle freezing. And often that is linked to what kind of egg freezing is endorsed or uh, reimbursed or uh, seen Mm -hmm. as a positive thing versus which ones aren't. Um, Now, these distinctions can be useful, um, but what I'm interested in is looking at how they are particularly politicized. And um, I think... In relation to what I was just talking about, it's quite interesting to see the medical versus social distinction, which is very much at the forefront in the Dutch discussion that I mentioned before, but also in other countries, because um, originally that medical egg freezing was allowed, so in, in relation to a particular pathology or treatment, but the social egg freezing wasn't. Um, and then later on it was, but there there is a real question about, um, you know, what is acceptable, what isn't acceptable, where is it? an expression of um, um, a a reproductive control that isn't welcome and where it is simply part of a broader treatment that will um, give people future health and that includes their future fertility. Um, I think there's a really interesting contrast there that on the one hand, when, uh, when there is a distinction between medical versus social egg freezing, that the social egg freezing is often presented as less serious or less necessary than the medical egg freezing but at the same time in the same discourse there's often a real pathologization of reproductive aging so while you have this kind of demedicalizing of egg freezing as it's it's just a social thing it's just a lifestyle thing it's just something that people want to do um to well sometimes they say people are selfish or sometimes they say um uh, people want to do it but it's not for As serious a reason as the medical reason. At the same time, the very idea of reproductive aging can become medicalized and pathologized in the same discourse. And so that's something that's really um, uh, at the forefront of um, what I was talking about before, in terms of the idea of when you become infertile and when fertility becomes an issue. And um, I, I really explore the idea of precarious fertility. So when does fertility become something precarious uh, which is often presented as you know you can empower yourself by freezing eggs when it is in a context in which egg freezing is being sold but at the same time that is linked to expanding the scope of risk associated with fertility and expanding the idea that um, you need to do something in order to um, counteract the fertility loss and the reproductive aging that's already part of your um, uh, your body and your and your lifespan. And in doing so it creates new dependencies so there's new risks and new dependencies associated with fertility in relation to this um and then the the opposition between single and lifestyle or single and career um, is really is really interesting as well because it, it's different in different countries, but it kind of comes from a legacy in which um, we have seen a kind of opposition between um uh, you know, there's, there's a long history of framing women's reproductive decisions and women's access to reproductive technologies in terms of social versus medical or lifestyle versus non-lifestyle. Um, we see this, for example, with the framing of caesareans as elective caesareans, social leg freezing, social abortion, social contraception, and often this qualifying of a technology or a reproductive um, um, treatment as social signifies a sort of controversy surrounding the agency of women in making those reproductive choices. And it tends to disappear when it's no longer controversial. So, for example, in relation to contraception, people don't really say medical versus social contraception anymore. People generally say contraception um, more broadly. Um, and so there's also a history of thinking about the um, the link between uh, that idea of uh, Somebody being frivolous and selfish, and a lifestyle decision around reproductive choices, and the narratives, stock narratives around somebody who is committed to reproduction but is prevented from, say, becoming a mother because of circumstances. So we saw this in um, in the history of abortion. So Anula Linders has written about that, for example, in which she described that in um, in Sweden there were a lot of narratives of Um, framing abortion in relation to uh, the story of a woman who was already a mother who had many children, who was exhausted and who wanted an abortion so that she could take care of her children versus the framing of abortion at that time in the early 20th century in the US where uh, abortion was really framed as um, uh, something for frivolous women who were selfish, who didn't want to uh, parent, who wanted to just live an easy life. And and that really frames um, uh, public debate surrounding that. And with egg freezing, it's a different story, but there is a return to that opposition between selfishness um, uh, versus uh, uh, somebody who is needs to freeze her eggs because of circumstance, because she broke up with her partner, or because she's single but doesn't want to be, and so on. So I think a lot of the research on egg freezing has pointed to the fact that most women who freeze their eggs do so because they don't have a partner at the moment and not necessarily for primarily career reasons. And that's really important to, to share. And at the same time, I think it's also really important to um, acknowledge that, you know, many reasons for egg freezing are um, permissible and that we don't necessarily need to frame it as only uh, something that happens to single women and that we need to disavow the idea uh, of, of freezing for career reasons as something that is, uh, would be a problem. Um, mm, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah.
2: Oh, well, mm. uh, oh yeah, thank, thank you. Sorry. Oh. No, I think it's just um, a, a, an interesting aspect uh, of that history that I want to add to that is, um, that, there is um, that there is also the way in which egg freezing comes from a longer history in which um, women's introduction into wage labor has been problematized in relation to their fertility, in relation to reproductive ageing. And especially um, in, in the 80s, and Carrie Friese and her colleagues have written about this, the idea that there is a biological clock that um, sort of prevents women from um, uh, having the same kind of freedoms that they would want because the price they would have to pay would be limited fertility is something that... Um, returns again and again in relation to the introduction of new reproductive technologies. And I think the politicization of um, a biological clock of reproductive aging is something that's very much at the forefront in um, egg freezing discourses as well. So I think it's really important that we share that most women freeze their eggs because they are single, um, but also that we look into what are the histories that are behind that assumption that is often put forward in media discourses, that this is because of careers, and that it feel, that it maybe follows on from those um, um, older discourses that in which careers are both disavowed and in which careers are really seen as in conflict with uh, women's fertility. And of course, we should find ways of, um, you know, seeing if we can bring those more into harmony with each other.
1: Mm, yeah yeah thank you for sharing the history as well and um you know as my research, uh, I'm really interested in reproductive yeah. labor uh yeah that a uh, particular history is really um interesting also in thinking in conjunction with how reproductive labor is often disavowed uh you know you see this like inside a lot with black feminists um you know who uh, really also like talk about um how for you know black women um who uh whose like reproductive labor was actually foundational to you know the um industrialization in the US South and like also informing white subjectivity, like reproducing the labor force um because you know they were uh seen as commodities. Like I think that really shows how uh, you know like despite you know this like popular conception of you know really disavowing like a women's labor um like the labor of women was actually always critical like you know even if you like think outside of the framework of like public versus like private work uh mm-hmm. boundary um so yeah yeah i really appreciate that you know all you all pointed that out to us and that um, I think that it was. It's also interesting to hear about this, like very moralistic, you know, argument about you know medical versus like social egg freezing. Um, because I'm actually thinking back to the debate that I had with my colleague, um, who actually don't agree with abortion. It was It was an interesting conversation. And then, um, you know, like in your own book as well, you know, you bring up abortion, and then you also mentioned that you're interested in looking at, you know, like other types of reproductive technologies. Um, but I remember this person was saying that, you know, they agree with medical abortion, you know, like if it's like medically induced or if um, if the mother um, is, you know, at risk, um, but then the person doesn't agree with social, like, for example, you know, like they made a mistake, then they should take the brunt of their mistake, right? Um, so it's like fascinating how, you know, these, um, I guess, like, Discourses uh, that presents a false binary of like medical and social, and like also a lot of assumptions, um, is you know really playing into I guess like the media portrayal of um you know of the um of the abortion or like egg freezing in a way that really tries to like confine women's uh women choices and then I guess um uh, and then their autonomy. So yeah, yeah, it's a it's a really fascinating insight. Uh, so thank you for that. Um, and mm-hmm. And I guess related to that, um, so I was thinking a lot when I was um, reading your book about, you know, like desirable population, um, because, you know, when you were talking about optimizing fertility, um, I was thinking, you know, about like Foucault and like biopolitics, you know, as well as the desirable population that, you know, a lot of like reproductive justice, uh, you know, activists and scholars are also talking about in relations to abortion as well. Um, so I was Wanted to talk a bit more about, you know, like uh, your insight into reproductive industrial complex um, as well as a uh, multi-cycle package. It was so fascinating to read about it because I didn't actually know of its existence. Um, and then how they're basically promoting, you know, like optimizing your chances of fertility and uh, you know, like minimizing risk using a very like investment-driven terms. Um so can you uh, define reproductive industrial complex for us? and how how these these um, institutionalized, commercialized technologies um, and packages are shaping biopolitics of yeah, today. right. Yes, um, th- th- those are a lot of different issues there, and it's it's
2: great to, to talk to them. Um, so yeah, the industrial, uh, the reproductive industrial complex is a term that um, was actually coined by Siggy Wertemann, who does really interesting work um, on. Um, Global fertility chains and um, I was inspired by her work to explore that more in relation to egg freezing specifically, and egg freezing in relation to the very complex um, industry that is uh, fertility at the moment. So we see a lot of changes in the fertility sector in the last decade, which have, um, which were traditionally we had fertility clinics that were a little bit like GP clinics where you had a doctor or several doctors who had a, um, an independent clinic and, um, um, you know, served uh, local patients um, linked to industry partners. So we have the pharmaceutical industry, which is a big part of the fertility sector who um, mainly provide the um, uh, fertility drugs, so which allow women to superovulate so they can uh, produce several eggs per cycle that can be extracted and then frozen or fertilized. And then you have a big uh, sector that is the biotechnology sector. So those are um, the industry partners that give um, lab materials and uh, machinery that's required for embryology and, and uh, uh, medium and so on. So um, those are the big components. And what has happened in the last decade is that there's been more uh, introduction of, um, on the one hand, uh, financial services and um, uh, capital markets into the um, fertility sector. So now you have more venture capital and private equity um, uh, investing in fertility. And uh, in that way, um, fertility clinics are not necessarily, um, say, making money by selling a cycle, but people are making money by buying and selling the fertility clinics themselves. And that's what I refer to with the financialization fertility, So that's something that's really characterising the current reproductive industrial complex. Um, And what I find uh, interesting to look at there is um, how that aligns with uh, a change in the clinical and commercial infrastructure of IVF more broadly, in the sense that often those investments um, move individual fertility clinics to broader fertility networks. And then you get much larger groups working together. And that's... um, can have effects in terms of what kind of technologies they use um, and it's very much linked to another trend that we see more recently which is the introduction of more digital and data-driven technologies um, for example for selecting embryos or predicting fertility or um, predicting which technology is going to be most useful for people so um, And those often help to standardise practice across a broader network. So those are some of the key changes in the um, uh, reproductive industrial complex that I look at. And so um, linking that back more to your question about sort of the hierarchies of who is a potential patient and and who is uh, IVF targeted to, um, I would would really look at... um, uh, but but I mean, the classical work in in this is um, uh, by Dorothy Roberts, who writes about writes in her book Killing the Black Body about um, how reproductive technologies have been used selectively. We also call it stratified reproduction, where certain populations are um, uh, you know welcomed or encouraged to use reproductive technologies and encourage reproduction, and the idea of their infertility is presented as a crisis, versus other populations where you have issues surrounding, say, forced sterilization or um, um, access to uh, uh, technologies not being allowed or affordable or accessible for other reasons, people not having um, access to good reproductive and um, sexual health care, people not having access to insurance, for example. So those are all um, elements that are part of a broader complex in which egg freezing plays a part. I think one interesting thinker in relation to this is Lisa Harris, who um, has who has described this kind of um, framing of the crisis of infertility when it pertains to white middle-class women, um, but the infertility of poor women of colour, um, which can be a result of ina- inadequate or no access to medical care not being addressed as a crisis in mainstream media. But I think another aspect of her work that's really interesting is that she also looks at the development of IVF and in which um, she describes how initially with IVF, there was a focus on blocked tubes, so blocked fallopian tubes. Um, and that is often the result, say, of untreated um, sexual uh, transmitted infections. And um, the, often that that initial um, um, indication for IVF of blocked tubes, which is very prevalent, um, has kind of become replaced by focus on Uh, IVF for age-related infertility. And egg freezing is kind Mm -hmm. of an extension of that. So she found that initially, while there was a focus on blocked tubes, and we see the first IVF baby, was um, uh, her mother was indicated for that reason as well. You see that there was uh, the majority of women who could actually afford IVF treatment had a concern with age-related infertility rather than blocked tubes. And so there was a real turn in in the industry over the decades um, that that became the focus of the fertility market because that's where the demand was from the people who could afford it. And so we see this real focus on the research and the marketing and the focus on um, um, yeah, uh, uh, providing IVF for um, people who have age-related infertility, which is where the most demand comes from. And so egg freezing is kind of extending that demand to um, uh, those women who are... Uh, experiencing age-related infertility, maybe who are older, um, but also um, trying to move that to earlier in life. So kind of bring that concern about age-related infertility, that's um, uh, bringing that to also women who are not experiencing age-related infertility, but who could already use IVF because they are anticipating that age-related infertility and who are very much of that group of um, um, highly educated women in high status or high income positions and um it's not exclusively so so that's important to add as well and there's more and more plans to make egg freezing more affordable for people either with subscription plans with loans and so on but with with many of these plans you make it more expensive for the people who can least afford it because then you get uh, fees and interests and so on on top of the already um high cost so um so oh, yeah, it's 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 really interesting in terms of the multi-cycles and the discount plans. So that's generally when um, we often talk about egg freezing as you freeze your eggs or you don't. But when you freeze your eggs, it's just the beginning. Um, when you freeze your eggs once, you have a certain number of eggs. And then the question is, does this actually resolve any concern that I might have about whether uh, I could use these eggs if I can no longer conceive in another way? Um So how many eggs would you need in order to actually um, conceive a child? And that's not very clear at the moment because it's such a new technology and because the success rates are changing all the time. So there's now a much more flexible notion of reproductive success when it comes to um, producing eggs rather than producing babies. So if you do an IVF cycle, you know whether you have a live baby at the end of it or you don't. But when you do an egg freezing cycle, you don't know um, if that's going to work or not. So... um, there are now new norms appearing about how many eggs you would need in order to have the assurance that uh, you could have a child with it in the future. Uh, and, and no amount of eggs can do that. But oftentimes there are now, you see these discount plans so that you pay a certain amount to do as many cycles as you need in order to get a certain number of eggs, or you pay for a number of cycles so you can um, um, produce as many eggs as you can with those cycles. And this all creates a particular um you know what I describe as a calculus of fertility. so what is um, you know what how much egg how many eggs do you need? how much do you need to invest uh, in order to achieve this sense of being prepared for future infertility? And um, because it's also uncertain, the framing of the clinic um, is is really key here. And it's a really difficult consideration because on the one hand, you could do too many cycles and then you have overtreatment. treatment And on the other hand, you could do too few cycles and then you can have future uh, failure or regret or, or false hope. Um, but the problem with that is that the people who are recommending this have an interest in doing more cycles, especially if egg freezing is presented as a pillar for growth, especially if they have pressure from investors and so on. So um, there is a really interesting dynamic at the moment where um, we have to think about when are you done freezing your eggs, and and what, um, yeah, what is required in order to have the sense of I have anticipated this infertility, and also for clinics to think about their responsibility that if they communicate, for example, you'll never be more fertile than you are today, or if you freeze this amount of eggs, you can feel empowered and you have um, turned back the biological clock. That's a term they often use, but. To what extent can you say that, and how do you link that to, um, you know, a particular recommendation of a number of eggs, which turns into a number of cycles? So, um, yeah, I think, I think really all these uncertainties are are um, fascinating, and they're also emerging in a in a changing sector, where in which people are experiencing uh, new pressures. Um, um, yeah, from a new organization of that sector. Um, as it is becoming more financialized, as the clinics are getting larger, as the um, incentive for growth is maybe becoming stronger. So um, uh, yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a, a fascinating change that's happening at the moment
1: mm yeah oh, that is super fascinating. Thank you for sharing and yeah, it's like making me think about like referencing back to you know our conversation on like temporality and then you know as you so elaborately put it like how these um you know agencies and organizations and like financial capital is um pushing us to think about like future in certain way kind of like you know presenting like the future without these technologies as you know something that is like yeah I guess like something that is maybe like regressive if you don't do anything about it and then um you know like unstable and risky while um you know it it also falsely like i guess like presents this like new view of futurity where like whereas with intervention you know you are ultimately going to you know reach like some kind of progressive future that is like constantly at risk. So it really like maps onto, I guess, like when you think about like development and also like nations and you know how like um, some nations are considered to be like, always in the state of like catching up and like developing um it's it's really fascinating how these are all like driving us to like a certain type of future um so yeah it's like super fascinating insight. thank, thank you and um i wanted to connect um you know your uh discussion about bio capital to you know um you know what you alluded to earlier in um datafication um and then you also talked about like kinship you know like new types of kinship that is being created through this process earlier in our conversation Um, can you elaborate for our listeners on that you know how like affect which you talk about in your book um figure in your work um as well as the concept of Hmm. kinning
2: yeah so let me start with um kinning maybe so that can go back to um what we were talking about before where um a lot of the studies in egg freezing have found that women freeze their eggs primarily because they are single at the moment and linked to that that they would like to have a child in together with a partner, and um, we've seen work by Zeynep Gurten and and Masha Inhorn and um, Catherine Baldby and um, Kylie Baldwin all pointing to that. And so I think it's a really important element uh, when we think about egg freezing that this is not just about extending fertility into the future, but also extending it towards a future partner and extending it towards um, a genetic connection with the future child potentially, but also the potential genetic connection through that child with a future partner if people are straight. And so if women are um, uh, imagining their future with a male partner or a partner who has sperm. uh, But also for for women who are gay or don't have partners with sperm, uh, the idea of partnering together, creating a family together with a partner. So I think in that sense, kinship is really at the heart of this technology. It's not only about later fertility, but that fertility is kind of in the surface of a particular idea of making family or of making kin. Um, And even though we see that many women who use their eggs are still single or again, single. So many women who return to um, use those eggs are not necessarily in that partnership that the majority pointed to as a motivation for egg freezing it is um something that maybe um uh, that's really at the heart of what motivates egg freezing um what's really important to mention is that egg freezing often doesn't work so there's about a 20% chance um that it leads to a uh, a baby per cycle and um most women don't return to use their eggs. So, so far about 5% of women return to use their eggs. But if they do return to use the eggs, it may not work. And then there's different approaches of, of using the eggs. So, um sometimes women um are, a clinic would recommend that a woman uses her frozen eggs first. If she comes to the clinic and says, I would like to have a child, uh, I'd like your help. They say, let's use the frozen eggs because they're younger and they have better quality. So, let's use them. In other clinics or other circumstances, they may say, let's try to conceive with your current eggs, whether with IVF or insemination or uh, having sex. And then we can use the frozen eggs as a backup if it doesn't work. So those are different models of fertility extension. And then there are also women who come to the clinic and it's clear that they can't conceive anymore. For example, if they are too old to conceive with their own eggs, but they do have frozen eggs and you would go straight to the frozen eggs. And In that last case, what happens is that fertility may be extended, but the loss of the fertility is also extended. So women may be older, but having grown older with the idea of I've made this investment, I have these eggs in the bank. So while I think that I can no longer conceive uh, without reproductive technologies, I still have this investment in these eggs in the freezer. And in fact, um, if those eggs then don't work, that kind of becomes an extended fertility loss that's also... Uh, a part of that experience and is also a loss of the potential kinship relations that are symbolized by that now taking that one step further is also um the possibility of posthumous fertility so having um uh, using your eggs to have children or to conceive children after you've died yourself and there have been a couple of cases that i describe in the book of of women who um uh, have fr- frozen their eggs, and especially in the, in the context of oncofertility, so in the context of a, a cancer diagnosis, and who have um, uh, frozen their eggs and sadly not survived the treatment or survived their disease, and have requested that others would um, um, use those eggs to have their children or the kind of investment that they had, that those eggs could still live beyond them. And uh, I think that's an important element to think about, not just because of those particular cases, but because anybody who freezes their eggs has to um, uh, fill in consent forms to decide what's going to happen with those eggs in case you die or you lose your mental capacity in the meantime. And that's where another form of kinship comes in that I uh, call intended kinship, where you can um, use your eggs to already think about you know, what do these eggs represent? How do these eggs form a legacy of myself? If they outlive me, what do I want to happen with them? Um, You know, you can have them be destroyed. They can be used for training purposes. They can be used for scientific research, but they can also be allocated to particular people that you say, I want you to have access to these eggs or use these eggs to um, uh, conceive children with. And so I think that question that... um, eggs as legacy, um, deciding on who can access those eggs and what kind of kinship relationships you can make um, in anticipation of your own mortality are really, really fascinating questions that come up in relation to egg freezing. And uh, in the UK, that is um, a standard part of the procedure. So everybody has to fill in forms uh, when they freeze their eggs of what's going to happen with those eggs and also whether you would like to donate them um, if if you come to die before the eggs are thawed. And so I think that's where egg freezing brings in that question of finitude and of mortality and of um, the end of life as something that's really something that is confronted when you might do something that initially was framed as something that was the end of fertility, um, as motivated by by circumventing that end of fertility. And, and so in that respect, I think there's many different forms of kinning and kinship that up at different stages of uh, egg freezing at the time of freezing at the time of storing and at the kind of time that you can imagine beyond your own life cycle that um, um, invites new forms of creating kinship and creating family with these particular cells Mm
1: um mm, yeah that's really fascinating and uh, yeah I remember you know reading the section on posthumous kinship and that uh, all feeling um and then like yeah and being very like struck by that um and I think you know that really like ties nicely into you know all the insights that you provide in your last chapter where you talk about how you know eggs are also used for stem research um and then um, how you can connect that back to like regeneration um as well and then how it like fascinating because for you know those eggs like they don't consider as much like desirability um at, you know I, I guess like um but then like the question of like ethics also come in um in terms of like when you can use the egg and then you like refer to um the fraud by Hwang Usaok who's like a South Korean like scientist um and then um his like yeah fraudulent research on um the research that he performs with the with the frozen eggs and I'm cognizant of the time um, uh, so this is going to be like the second to last question sorry like we're running a bit you know like over time Yeah. Um, but yeah I did really want to like talk about like you know the colonial legacy that you mentioned in the last chapter because you know like my research um, is on South Korea and you know like I was fascinated by it because you know I you know read um, other you know Korean scholars who talk about Hwang woo you know he is actually quite infamous and um you know, how like his like, you know, fraudulent, you know, research is needs to be considered in the context of, you know, South Korea's like history of colonization by Japan. And then by the U.S., you know, it's like the imperial like neocolonization and how, you know, this wish for, you know, regeneration, like you're like frozen eggs and then, you know, growing, you know, biotech in Korea is actually a legacy of, you know, colonization and what they see as like a stunted you know growth and like oh you know and we, when we bring in temporality as well it's like interesting because you know there's a sense of like oh our time is delayed or like stopped and we need to like revive it um so yeah i um my second to last question is you know how do you see colonial legacy you know like impacting research in the various contexts that you examine um uh, and hope to maybe examine in the future more so yeah, too. Yeah, great. I mean, I think also in this case,
2: you probably um, are are a greater expert on this topic, but um, I think the Hwang the case is really fascinating in relation to um, uh, a lot of the new stem cell research that's happening in relation to SCNT or also called cloning technology, somatic cell nuclear transfer, in relation to um, work on mitochondrial transfer and um, what is sometimes called the three-parent three babies and so on. So there is um, uh, there have been some recent developments um, in the last decade in the field of reproductive biology and in the field of uh, stem cell research that have really put eggs at the centre of thinking about ageing and rejuvenation and whether eggs could be, as it were, a fountain of youth, whether if you use eggs, you can um, uh, look at, for example, using uh, people's somatic cells DNA in order to rejuvenate and create embryonic tissue that would have the same DNA or whether you could rejuvenate eggs um, by uh, transferring mitochondria into them or using mitochondrial transfer uh, with eggs in order to um, have older eggs be viable again. So my, my approach to this research was really about looking at how um, uh, these ideas about aging really are central to um, uh, more fundamental biological research as well. And when you look at the research in relation to SCNT, so in relation to that technology that uses uh, an egg and uses the DNA of a somatic cell, so that's any cell of the body that's not a gamete, so that's not a sex cell, um, and takes the DNA of that cell and puts it into an egg, and then lets that egg develop into an embryo. Um, that kind of research is um, uh, only became uh, successful in the last decade, but kind of repeated the studies that um, uh, Huang wu was, was doing at the time and which were retracted from science. And so because they followed that legacy of his case, um, the question of egg donation is really central there. And um, the the research in the Hwang case was not just fraudulent, but there was also uh, uh, practices around egg donation that were uh, concerning. So there were more eggs used than that had been um, uh, published. And also um, women were paid for it when uh, it was stated that they weren't paid for it. There were conflicts of interest and so on. So since then, there's been a lot of attention to um, the question of what are ethical ways of doing egg donation, especially in the Korean context. Because as you mentioned, um, there was a real sense of you know having a lot of investment in biotech in Korea, uh, and really a lot of investment in in Huang's laboratory. So uh, there was like uh, 65 million investment in his lab, and um, researchers like. Uh, Kim and Gottwein speak about uh, bio-nationalism in this context and about the idea of a nationalism that's linked to biotech and biotechnology and uh, scientific progression. Um, And Kara Thompson has written a great book called um, uh, Good Science in which she describes the new international stem cell geopolitics and looks at all those relations between the US and Korea and um, other Asian nations in relation to the kind of Uh, the nationalism, the colonial legacies of um, investing in biotech and of using science and international scientific competition in order to um, make oneself prominent on the world stage. Um, And linked to that kind of um, bio-nationalism is also the idea of egg donation at the time as something that was a patriotic thing to do. It was something that showed that you were, as a woman, also investing and putting your body on the line with this bigger project of like, building up the nation and and growing the nation through um, biotech investment. Um, Now, because because of the concerns about egg donation in the Hwang case, in the Korean case, there has been an adjustment of the rules about how egg donation can happen in relation to the stem cell research. And there was a bit of a backlash after the scandal. And so what happened instead is that in the uh, bioethics law, yeah, there was really a focus on not using freshly donated eggs and potentially repeating uh, some of the issues with um, uh, uh, paying women for egg donation or any unethical practices in relation to egg donation for research. And instead, there w- was a focus on you could use residual eggs instead of the fresh eggs that are directly donated. It's, it's a better ethical choice to use eggs that are left over from treatment. And the thing is, in IVF, there are hardly any leftover eggs, because if a woman goes or a couple goes through IVF, you would try to fertilize all the eggs, because you want to get embryos, you want to try and have a baby. Um, But with egg freezing, you do have leftover eggs, because like I mentioned before, only 5% of women have returned so far to use the eggs. Many women freeze their eggs, but find they can still get pregnant if they want to get pregnant or... They have children in another way, or they decide they don't want to have children, or they haven't decided anything yet, so the eggs stay in the freezer. And so, because so very few women actually use their eggs, we can expect there's going to be a lot of leftover eggs in the world. And um, eggs are incredibly valuable, that per gram, they are worth more than diamonds. Um, And the possibility of using these eggs for um, something like scientific research is an option that uh, women could choose. So in the in the adjustment of the Korean law, there was a focus on these residual eggs. And um, since then, there have been more studies into can we use frozen eggs instead of fresh eggs for, for example, uh, different stem cell technologies. Um, but also concerns from the scientists to say, you know, how can we compete with the international stage if we only can use frozen eggs and they can use fresh eggs that we are, you know, we're not able to be competitive as a result of that. So, um, the, the focus on frozen eggs as a kind of ethical compromise to still allow egg donation, but only with frozen eggs creates a new issue of, um, are egg freezers becoming egg donors. And you may know more than I do, but, um, like you mentioned, your friends are considering egg freezing, um, uh, potentially in Korea. I don't know if they're in Korea or elsewhere. Um, what I gathered is that egg freezing is quite common, um, in, in, uh, South Korea as well. So, um, it's it's interesting to see whether there is a link between the um, the growth and the promotion of egg freezing and actually the stem cell research that's reliant on these frozen eggs becoming residual so that they can do their research. And so far, we've seen that the um, the grants and the research projects that have been permitted to go ahead are part of similar uh, of the same companies that also offer egg freezing to women. So that could be happening in-house and that's not necessarily a problem but it is an important dynamic to see in if egg freezing actually becomes a way of egg donation in which women um, are motivated differently by the time they don- donate and the time that the eggs go um, to their destination and in terms just lastly about uh, colonialization and, and its legacies it's quite interesting when we look at financialization how a lot of the power relations are shifting as well in terms of the corporate chains and the corporate power relations. So, for example, one of the largest um, medical groups and stem cell labs in Korea is called CHA, um, CHA. And they are now, um, they, they have clinics in the US, for example. They have bought up the fourth largest fertility chain in Australia. They are a very important force, kind of financially in the fertility field globally that is um uh, acquiring clinics around the world and we see that with uh, different asian uh, countries so in korea it's it's cha for example uh, in china there's a, a b doctor and there's some other uh, large companies like uh, yin who are um buying up clinics in in the us in australia with an idea of um uh, expanding their market but also um expanding the, the corporate chains to match the um, movement of people to go to uh, get their treatment abroad or to um, uh, move people into uh, a familiar uh, corporate environment. So it's it's a really interesting development in terms of the power relations that are developing in relation to these financialized streams and these new um, um, relations of ownership between clinics and fertility groups across the world. And I think there we see a, a, a shift of um, balance and a shift of power relations that is fairly new. And that's um, uh, happening along different lines than, than we're familiar a couple of decades ago. So um, yeah, that, that's, I think, the, the, the link that I could make in relation to your question.
1: Yeah. oh thank you for a really comprehensive answer and yeah I'm very cognizant of the time so um you know even though I want to talk more about this topic I do want to move on to the uh, last question uh, what is the um uh you know now that you finished that you know your book and then you know it's like successfully published um what are you working on now yeah so um i think in the book i really wanted to
2: focus on that changing idea of fertility as people anticipating fertility earlier and also having different ways of staying fertile later. And as a result, we are not quite fertile, we're not quite infertile, but rather it's a kind of post-fertility and that's kind of broader condition that we live in. It's not just the women who freeze their eggs, but it's a broader understanding of, you know, how do we relate to uh, our fertility? What kind of literacy do we need in order to understand our fertility? And how is that fertility politicized and capitalized differently uh, in different contexts. And so kind of following on from them from that what I did uh, in this book, um, I think as I'm moving forward with my with my research now is um, really linking that to the trend of um, if this book was about preservation, thinking that more to the trend of prediction. So if, we are, if preservation is a lot about anticipating futurity, it really matches with um, new technologies and new ideas about prediction that are really at the heart of IBM at the moment. So like I mentioned before, new applications of um, artificial intelligence and machine learning, new ways of um, using data to predict what's going to work, what may not work, to automate things because there's a real shortage of um, um, medical professionals in this field, given that it's growing so quickly. So is part of the embryological work able to be automated as clinics are growing, can parts of that be standardized across um, uh, uh, different branches? So um, yeah, so I wanna combine preservation with prediction also with private equity. So I mentioned it a couple of times, but the idea that the um, um, equity investors, capital investors are coming into the um, fertility space And are really creating a new power balance between smaller and larger clinics, within clinics, uh, within larger groups, within the relation between patients and doctors, the relation between clinics and industry, such as pharmaceutical and and biotech industry. And really trying to see, like, how can we characterize this new fertility space, this new fertility sector, Um, as we have a broader indication, so more people coming in who are not necessarily traditionally infertile but also more new technologies are being introduced and more investment capital that requires growth in order to have a return on investment. And I think those co- that combination of those things together um, is, is really characterising the current moment in the fertility sector. So in my work at the moment, I'm um, part of um, uh, a global network um, that's called Changing Infertilities, and it's based at Cambridge and Yale, uh, run by Sarah Franklin and Marcia Inhorn. And we are looking at changing ideas and practices of fertility and how that uh, may link, for example, to many different issues like fertility in relation to LGBT issues, um, racial inequalities, environmental factors, um, translational biology and so on. And um, within that context, for me, I'm looking at changing ideas of fertility. um, But instead of um, um, focusing only on egg freezing, linking that to these new technologies, these new Uh, fertility space and also speaking a lot with um, fertility professionals at the moment on how they reflect on these changes and then in my next book project I really want to characterize the fertility sector and focus more on the financialization of fertility as um, a concept that requires its own theorization and its own characterization at the moment and that financialization is both the financing of of the sector with capital investors Both the introduction of financial services like loans and insurance and so on uh, playing a key role in how people access these technologies, but also ideas of investment that we see in relation to egg freezing becoming more prominent across the fertility sector and in the framing of what fertility is and what it means for us today.
1: Yeah, yeah, that sounds super fascinating, and I look forward to reading it as well. I, I mean, like, like prediction, Um, it actually makes me think of, um, you know, Foucault's The Order of Things, and then how he talks about whether, uh, how he talks about, um, you know, like, I guess like he historizes uh, bio- biology, and then he talks about how, like, it's not that because we have a new to- technology that we see new things, but ra- rather, you know, it's like, I guess like the framework and like uh, the tools and the questions that we ask that allows us to see so I I feel like you know with the financialization and like you know your theorizing of uh, prediction like I, I feel like you add so much to that insight about you know visibility and like uh, our ability to see being determined like not because you know like uh, because we have better technology necessarily, but rather because we are being shaped to do so. Um, so yeah, it's like super fascinating. And I look forward to, you know, like reading your next book. Thank you very much. <laughs> I, I look forward
2: to, to writing it. Yeah. And it's been a real pleasure speaking with you and um, being part again of this great series. I really appreciate the work that you and your team do, making so much uh, interesting work available to us via this podcast.
1: Uh, yeah of course and I'm like really excited for the listeners to like hear about your amazing book as well and like everyone should read it because it's so relevant you. Oh,
2: <laughs> yeah. really good to mention that it's published oh, open okay. access so if people are interested in reading this oh. of course they can buy a paper copy but they can also find it mm. on a uh, New York University Press's website called Open Square mm. and there you can read the book for free
1: Oh, perfect! Yeah, so everyone go to Open Square of uh, uh, by a um, New York University website and read Lucy's book. It's like extremely illuminating and very relevant. Yeah, thank you again for being here, Lucy. Um, I look forward to like uh, chatting next time as well with your next Great, wonderful. book. wonderful. <laughs> I'll let you know when it's done. Yeah. Thank
2: you very thank you. much.